Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Rouleau University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we round out our discussion about breast cancer, this time talking about triple negative breast cancer in the metastatic setting. And guys, it has been a long road. Yeah, this has been a a crazy journey. We're finally coming to the end. This is our last breast cancer episode. We actually covered somehow the entirety of breast cancer. When I say the entirety, we covered the major high yield points and we really did break it down. We went on a good historical tour of breast cancer and we're gonna continue that today. So excited to get to this one. Yeah, I know we're saying this is the last breast cancer episode, but I just, at this point, it's so hard for me to believe that it's true, but I I am happy that we're finally here. Dan, I think you're onto something. I mean, as we've said before, the updates just keep on rolling. So we'll probably need to be doing a highlights and updates from from another conference kind of episode in the probably the very near future. But so then I guess we can say until next time, breast cancer. So um, with that, let us roll that show. Okay, guys, how are we feeling today? Doing great. I just made some carne asada tacos, which are very delicious. And I don't really think this is technically carne asada, but I put soy sauce in the marinade and it was very good. I'm pretty sure that that's not real carne asada, but you know, it had had the lime, the garlic, the cilantro, all the rest of the good stuff in it. But soy sauce, the secret ingredients, very good. I defer to Dan as to whether or not that's acceptable. Strongly in favor of soy sauce and marinade in general. My favorite combo is soy sauce, garlic, rosemary those three together they, they seem to do something to each other um of course there's a lot of other stuff you can throw in there a little lemon zest a little ginger you know a, a little bit of mustard but the, the core that sort of trinity of soy sauce garlic rosemary and you know i added that lime zest and uh a lot the lime juice in it it's just it just took it to the next level my dad says always use citrus when you're marinating meats it just really brings out the flavors in the meat so Guys, we've had a really long journey through breast cancer, and we are at what will likely be our last episode in this series on triple negative breast cancer in the metastatic setting. And I certainly think that I've learned a lot. I think that I really have appreciation for why we actually do what we do now, which I can't say that I necessarily knew before. And I think it actually makes a very complex disease a lot more approachable, but I hope certainly our listeners feel the same way. So with that, Vivek, do you want to kick us off with our our case for today? Yeah, let's do it. So we have a 38-year-old female with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. She had been treated for stage three triple negative breast cancer with earlier with neoadjuvant TCAC plus Pembro, followed by mastectomy with axillary lymph node dissection and radiation. She did not achieve a pathologic CR and was started on capecitabine based on the CREATE-X trial. If any of that was confusing, check out our early stage triple negative breast cancer episode or just check out the show notes and that'll all make sense. She now presents one year later after completing her adjuvant capecitabine. Imaging shows diffuse metastatic disease in the liver and a core biopsy of the liver met was consistent with triple negative breast cancer that was also HER2 1 plus by IHC, so she was HER2 low. She now presents to Medical Oncology Clinic for discussion of prognosis and treatment options. We're missing a 
few key diagnostic tests that will ultimately inform our treatment, including bracket testing and pdl one CPS testing. But before we get into those tests and the treatment plan, how should we think about recurrence risk after we have definitive treatment in our triple negative breast cancer patients? So I just want to remind everyone that we talked about this a little bit in prior episodes, but compared to other subtypes of breast cancer, this triple negative subtype has the highest risk of early relapse. The hazard rate for distant recurrence, so recurrence away from that primary site, is about 15% for the first year, and it remains about 10% per year for years two through four. After that, for years four through five, it drops down closer to 5% and in kind of lower rates as time goes on. Contrast that with our non-triple negative breast cancers, where you really do see a more even consistent risk for recurrence and in particularly greater recurrence later on after the initial was was diagnosed. But for this triple negative, definitely counsel your patients that those first five years are the highest risk times with the first year and change being the overall highest risk. Yeah. In general, you know, triple negative breast cancer, as we've been alluding to, is really a tough disease, especially with this early relapse risk. And so, you know, we often see it in our younger patients. We often also see it associated with that BRCA1 mutation. So when should we think about sending germline BRCA testing for triple negative breast cancer patients? I know that we talked about the use of PARP inhibitors in the adjuvant setting in the early stage disease. So I suspect, of course, that there is some data to support its use in the metastatic setting. What's really interesting to me is these guidelines have changed since I started fellowship, actually. And nowadays, we recommend testing any female with breast cancer younger than the age of 50. All triple negative breast cancer patients should get offered testing given the treatment implications that Ronick alluded to in both the adjuvant and the metastatic setting. And we'll get to the metastatic setting today. The indications have really broadened for these BRCA-mutated patients with the PARP inhibitors. So that's why it's critically important to get that testing done. One thing I do want to mention, because I've seen this happen before, is that somatic testing and germline testing are very different. Here we're looking for germline BRCA mutations. What you might see is that a tumor biopsy specimen gets the somatic BRCA testing sent, and that's not the same as germline testing. We're going to have a future episode talking about genetics. We're going to take a little break and then get back to it, but we'll have all the details about this in that episode. Yeah, that's just really important to keep in mind. We need to also make sure that we're reaching out to genetic counseling when appropriate prior to sending some of these tests. In our early stage episode, we also talked a little bit about how the triple negative breast cancer is a genetically heterogeneous disease. And in particular, that the tumor microenvironment tends to play a role in breast cancer cell survival. So is there any role for immunotherapy here with, with triple negative breast cancer, uh, given the importance of the, the tumor microenvironment and potential increased neoantigen expression compared with other forms of breast cancer? For sure, Dan. So in that microenvironment, there actually are higher levels of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes or TILs and PDL1 expression in some patients. And so this led us to actually organize trials of immunotherapy in triple negative breast cancer, many of which were enrolled or stratified by PDL1 status, which is how it became so critical and why it became so critical that we get PDL1 testing in our patients. 
And that was essentially the case in our patient. So she did not have a BRCA1 mutation, but was found to have a PDL1 CPS score of 15. So, guys, I'm going to ask a similar question to what I did before. How would you approach this patient with this information now? Before we get into the current algorithm where we can incorporate the use of chemotherapy plus immunotherapy with pembrolizumab for a CPS score greater than 10, we need to get a little bit of historical perspective to fully understand how we treat patients who don't have a high CPS score or who don't have a germline BRCA mutation. So the key thing here is that in the 1990s, there were several studies looking at epirubicin alone versus combination regimens, which all really found that single-agent epirubicin was just as good with less toxicity. So basically, single-agent chemo was just as good as combination therapies. Then there was a pivotal trial run by the ECOG cooperative group called E1193. We're going to link that to our show notes. This included 739 patients with metastatic breast cancer from 1993 to 1995. So it's an older study. Looked at doxorubicin alone versus paclitaxel or taxol alone, versus the combination of doxorubicin and paclitaxel. The results were published in 2003, and I feel like this paper is something that's so important to look at. We think about how our view of PFS has changed over the last two decades and the rise of surrogate endpoints. And so I, I really encourage any hematology oncology fellow, any oncologist, to look at this paper. It's older, but it's, it is very important. There was improved response rates from 35% to 48%. So you got you know, maybe about 10, 15%-ish better response rate with combination therapy. And there was an improved time to treatment failure, basically. So these patients had a better PFS when they had combination therapy versus single-agent therapy. But ultimately, there was no difference in overall survival, with the median overall survival close to 20 months in all of these arms, whether you got single-agent Taxol, single-agent Doxorubicin, or the combination. So really, there was no difference between Doxorubicin or Paclitaxel or the combination. And the author's conclusion was, and they, they wrote this, they said, despite superiority in response rate and time to treatment failure, combination therapy failed to improve overall survival. Perhaps more importantly, given the usually fatal nature of the disease, combination therapy did not improve quality of life. And this is so critically important because they discussed that, hey, this has better response rates in PFS, but these are poor surrogates for overall survival. And you'll see that our view on this has changed so much in the last two decades. And it's important to highlight that now we're using things like PathCR, PFS as surrogates. But when we look back to this 2003 paper, they were thinking, hey, single agent chemotherapy has less toxicity and the patient will not have any decrease in their length or quality of life. So that became the standard of care in triple negative breast cancer, sequential single agent chemotherapy. I think it's always fascinating to go through this from a historical perspective and, and really see how we ended up at the treatments that we have today. Single-agent chemotherapy has been standard care for a really long time. And given the results of that older trial, paclitaxel typically is, is the first-line option for those with a lower CPS. Prior to immunotherapy, were there other combination or single-agent regimens put to trial? Yeah, Dan. So we will put this information in our show notes, but we'll try to give you the highlights here. 
So listeners, remember that in our prior discussions, we talked about patients that have BRCA1 mutations benefiting from the use of platinum agents because these patients have issues with their DNA repair mechanisms. And so that platinum agent is more effective in these cases. And in fact, many triple negative breast cancer patients have impaired homologous repair mechanisms regardless of their BRCA status. And so single agent carboplatin has been trialed and was no better than a taxane. There's also data suggesting synergy between cisplatin and gemcitabine. So this combination was trialed against paclitaxel and gemcitabine for all patients with triple negative breast cancer, though it's unclear why paclitaxel monotherapy wasn't a comparator here. Well, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and we found that cisplatin plus gemcitabine had improved progression-free survival by a little over one month. But we also know that the toxicity of cisplatin is not worth it. So now we use carboplatin plus gemcitabine for these patients, which will be important as we talk about the immunotherapy combination regimens in just a moment. Do note that these results were not stratified, though, by BRCA status. There's one important thing I want to highlight. The trial that you mentioned where they compared carboplatin to docetaxel, that taxane, and those who had triple negative breast cancer, they stratified the results by BRCA subtype and found that the response rates doubled. It was called the TNT trial, and that's where we got this idea that platinum agents work very well in BRCA-mutated triple negative breast cancer, but not necessarily all comers, because there's no difference if you looked at the total population. Got it. So we use single-agent paclitaxel or potentially carboplatin plus gemcitabine for a triple negative breast cancer. And I know that for a CPS greater than 10, we use chemoimmunotherapy. And for a CPS less than 10, we use chemotherapy. So how did this approval come about? So immunotherapy was first examined in the second line or later setting. We started with Keynote 119, looking at single-agent pembrolizumab versus essentially dealer's choice chemotherapy. Among the agents used were capecitabine, gemcitabine, arebulin, venerelbine. Again, this was back in the sort of single agent chemotherapy paradigm in, in triple negative breast cancer. The study looked at a little over 600 patients who all had had prior treatment, and it found no difference in progression-free survival or overall survival with an overall response rate of only about 14% in immunotherapy as a monotherapy agent. Notably, it did not require a high CPS score for enrollment in the study. And there was a trend towards improved responses in patients that had a CPS of greater than 20 in that trial. The next step was looking at combination chemoimmunotherapy. Would it be any better if we added some of these conventional chemotherapy agents to the immunotherapy strategy? The IM Passion or Impassion 130 led to the first approval of combination therapy that has notably since been withdrawn. So this included metastatic triple negative breast cancer patients who had had no prior treatment for their advanced disease, for the metastatic disease. And it only allowed enrollment for those who had progressed after their initial therapy over 12 months since the prior therapy. So we're not looking at, at those super fast relapses, or super early relapses, but from a year out from therapy and onward. There was no requirement that the patient's tumor be tested positive for PDL1 and had co-primary endpoints of progression-free survival and overall survival in a sort of intention-to-treat paradigm. They also had a planned subgroup analysis for the PDL1 positive population. 
The two arms of the study were atezolizumab plus nabpaclitaxel, aka Braxane, versus Abraxane alone. And what they saw was that the addition of atezolizumab improved progression-free survival by about two months in the intention to treat and pdl one positive groups from five months to seven months. There was no difference in overall survival in the intention to treat group, but median OS did improve from 18 to 25 months in the pdl one positive subgroup. It was not statistically significant in the overall ITT population, but pretty interesting sort of trend towards improvement. At the same time, we had another trial called I Am Passion 131, which was essentially the same design as I Am Passion 130, but it looked at atezolizumab plus paclitaxel, not nab paclitaxel, not the albumin bound form, just paclitaxel versus paclitaxel alone. They didn't see any difference in PFS or OS in either population, either the intention to treat group or the pdl one positive subpopulation. And it was, it was just a really important negative confirmatory study that essentially ended up resulting in the withdrawal of that prior approval for atezolizumab. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of a cautionary tale. We get really excited about things like adding chemotherapy and immunotherapy, but we got to kind of rely on the science to tell us what's really going to be useful. But it does kind of lead us towards how we get to our current standard of care. One critically important thing about that I am passion 130 and 131, this is why the FDA likes to require confirmatory trials for these patients is because you can have a positive finding and then the findings not be confirmed in a subsequent trial, which led to the withdrawal of the atezolizumab combination therapy. But what we have now for our standard of care is from another keynote trial, Keynote 355. Don't worry about the numbers. This compared Pembro plus chemo versus chemo alone. The chemo could be carbo plus gem. Remember we talked about the the platinum agent plus gemcitabine earlier that Ronick had mentioned, abraxane, that nab paclitaxel, or paclitaxel. And there's a pre-specified analysis for PFS and OS in three subgroups, CPS 10 or more, CPS 1 or more, and the intention to treat population. And remember that the CPS score just means that how much pd one positivity do you have in the tumor and the surrounding immune cells, whereas TPS is just the tumor cells that count for that pd one score. So it's the composite proportion score. The PFS improved in the CPS greater than 10, greater than 1, and intention-to-treat populations, though the effect size was highest for those with the CPS greater than 10, with an improvement in PFS by roughly 4 months compared to only 2 months in the other subgroups. The key thing was overall survival was only improved in the CPS greater than 10 months, with a median overall survival of 23 months compared to 16 months. This led to the approval of Pembro plus chemo in metastatic triple negative breast cancer for a CPS greater than or equal to 10. So that's the key thing to know. The CPS score greater than or equal to 10, Pembro plus chemo. I do want to highlight one thing, and cross-trial comparisons isn't the best thing to do, but median OS of 23 months, remember that ECOG trial we talked about from 1995? Median overall survival was 20 months. So we haven't had that blockbuster improvement that we would like to see, but we're making incremental gains. So it sounds like it definitely took us some time to figure out which patients would derive benefit from immunotherapy in the metastatic setting with triple negative breast cancer. Our patient had a CPS of 15, so she got Pembro plus Taxol. She had an initial response to therapy, but ultimately progressed after around 11 months. What would we have done if her CPS had been lower, had been below that 10 threshold? 
As we mentioned earlier, likely we would have done single agent chemotherapy, and that would have been our preferred approach because your CPL score is less than 10. But there are many options, but we often think that paclitaxel or capecitabine, which remember guys is oral, so it's it's convenient. So those would maybe the, be the first two things that I would consider reaching for. If this patient did have a germline BRCA mutation, which recall listeners, our patient does not, but if she did, we could choose chemotherapy or a PARP inhibitor. So remember that platinum agents, as I mentioned before, work well against cancer cells with DNA repair deficiencies, and that includes those BRCA-mutated cancer cells. So the chemotherapy preference in this case would be carboplatin. So there was a phase three trial called TNT that compared carboplatin versus docetaxel in the first-line treatment of metastatic triple-negative breast cancer or in metastatic BRCA-mutated breast cancer. And what they found was that there was no difference in progression-free survival or or overall survival. But there were higher response rates in the BRCA-mutated subtype, roughly doubled from 68% to 33%. And so this is why carboplatin is the preferred agent for chemotherapy for those BRCA-mutated patients. So then there were also two phase three trials that looked at the use of PARP inhibitors in BRCA-mutated patients. And so the first is the Olympiad trial, looking at Olaparib, and then there's the Embraca trial, looking at Talazaparib. So this included all HER2-negative patients, so, but it also had patients that were hormone-positive and triple-negative breast cancer patients. It was powered for PFS, and in total... Uh, There were 54 patients with triple negative breast cancer in the Olympiad trial and 150 patients with triple negative breast cancer in the Embraca trial. Of course, as we are getting used to now, we always want to know what is in the control arm. So patients enrolled had prior treatment with ataxane, anthracycline, or both. And so patients were being treated then with capecitabine, erebulin, gemcitabine, or veneralbine. So The active drug had an overall response rate of approximately 60% compared to 20% with standard chemo. The caveat was that this was investigator-assessed, so certainly it is prone to bias. The progression-free survival improved from four to five months to about seven to eight months. And so these numbers, recall, included patients that were hormone receptor positive and had triple negative breast cancer. And the triple negative breast cancer subgroup seemed to derive more benefit. There was no difference in overall survival, and there was more hematologic toxicity in patients with the PARP inhibitor, and of course, as we've been alluding to before as well, also more financial toxicity. There was improved quality of life with the PARP inhibitors over chemotherapy. However, this was not assessed through the cancer journey, but just during the trial period. So it does bring into question whether or not quality of life could and would improve over the whole journey if they had gotten a PARP inhibitor at progression and chemotherapy first. All right, well, I think that makes sense. You know, if CPS is less than 10, then first line is single agent chemo. If they have a BRCA mutation, then we try and be targeted about our treatment. We use the biology that we understand with either single agent platinum chemotherapy or a PARP inhibitor because we know it's susceptible to those those double-stranded DNA breaks. For our patient, she had that high CPS, and then progressed on her Pembro plus Taxol. She didn't have a germline BRCA mutation, as far as I can remember. So what should we consider for her in the second line? 
All right, so I'm going to finish this out with both the second and the third line because it's pretty quick from here. So remember that single-agent chemotherapy and clinical trial is always an option for these patients. But now we have good data for the use of antibody drug conjugates. So the first question we should ask our patients then, after they progress on first-line therapy with either chemo plus immunotherapy or PARP inhibitor, is are they HER2 low? And we talked about this in our ER-positive metastatic episode, and we're going to link this into our show notes again. It was called the Destiny Breast 04. We're all destined to get trastuzumab deruxetecan. And remember that this is an option for HER2 low patients, meaning a 1-plus or a 2-plus by IHC with negative FISH. And in that trial, in the triple negative breast cancer subgroup, there was improved PFS and disease control rates. So it's an option. The caveat there is really small numbers of patients. It was about 40 patients who got trastuzumab deruxetecan compared to 18 patients who got chemotherapy, but very promising. So that would be the thing that we would do for a patient who is HER2 low in the second line or greater. Let's say they aren't HER2 low. Then we'd proceed with the antibody drug conjugate called sasituzumab govitecan. We also discussed this in the hormone receptor positive metastatic episode. So again, we just encourage everybody to check out our show notes. We don't want to rehash too much of this. But this is an antibody drug conjugate to trope 2, which is universally expressed on breast cancer cells. So we don't really have to test for this on IHC. And this approval in triple negative breast cancer was based on a phase 3 trial called the ASCENT trial. And really, it randomized patients in the second line or greater to the sasituzumab govitecan versus single-agent chemotherapy. There's an improved median PFS of 5.6 months compared to 1.7 months. Overall response rate was above 30% compared to only 5%. So really, this shows great activity and is promising as we think about should we incorporate something like sasituzumab govitecan earlier on in our treatment, like how we use the antibody drug conjugates in HER2-positive disease. You know, once you kind of boil it down to these highlights, it does become a little bit more digestible. I, Vivek, I think it's really interesting to hear that even during your fellowship, a lot of these guidelines have been changing. And I, and I think this just kind of highlights even what we talked about in lung cancer, right? With the advent of a lot of these new drugs, we are eager and anxious to see how they're changing outcomes for our patients. But as you had mentioned before, we are still waiting for a big blockbuster moment in, in the treatment of this disease. And so hopefully that's on the horizon as we continue to make progress. Yeah, absolutely. And we were hoping it was immunotherapy, but the reality is it, it wasn't. And hopefully those patients who got that neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy treatment, they will derive the most benefit out of this. I just want to do a brief recap. This is very simple, everybody. When you have a triple negative breast cancer patient in the metastatic setting, you ask yourself, is the PDL1 score greater than 10, that CPS score greater than 10? If so, chemotherapy plus Pembro. If the score is less than 10, do they have a BRCA mutation? If they do have a BRCA mutation, it's either single agent platinum chemotherapy or a PARP inhibitor. And you can sequence those in any way you want. You could do PARP first, then single-agent platinum, or platinum first, then single-agent PARP. Doesn't really matter. And then after that, you reach for your antibody drug conjugates. You think about a HER2-low patient. If they are HER2-low, you have trastuzumab, deruxtecan, and otherwise, you can give that sasituzumab, govitecan, so one of those antibody drug conjugates. And just remember, sequential single-agent chemotherapy, combination chemotherapy is not needed because it does not improve survival or quality of life in triple negative breast cancer. It's just so important to remember that the goal of our, our therapy and therefore the 
our tolerance for side effects changes with with metastatic disease. And so I'm glad that you reminded us of that. And just always think about clinical trials. If you're getting in the patient that's getting towards later and later lines of therapy, keep a search out, make sure there aren't some trials that might be appropriate because as we talked about, that breakthrough treatment is going to come. Great reminders all around, guys. All right. Well, I think with that, we will wrap up our show. Are there any other final thoughts? Now, this is a good journey through breast cancer. I learned a lot. Hopefully, our listeners did too. Check out our show notes. We spend time preparing those. And it really, even if you don't listen to the audio, check out the show notes because we're doing this so that we can teach everybody. And we learned a lot going through all of this. Yeah, I'm glad we're done. All right, guys. So until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.